Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Stuart, Sean, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Yeah, great to connect, guys. Yeah, looking forward to our discussion this week. So much to dig into, but... Before we do, I just want to acknowledge some terrific support that we're getting from our hub donors. Uh, A couple people generously coming on board as hub fellows with uh, $500 donations for lifetime membership at the hub. I want to thank Connor L. and Heather R. for their generous support, along with James E. We've also got a bunch in the past week. This is just the past week, guys, a bunch of new hub donors at the $100 level. This gets you access to our Monday to Friday email, plus the best of the hub, plus supporting podcasts like this. So thank you so much, JD, George R, Paul L, Jamie G, Rob W, Elizabeth N. Really appreciate your support. And if you do enjoy this podcast, shameless plug here, please consider becoming a hub donor. It's 25 cents a day. It helps us make these podcasts happen, makes the hub happen. Thank you again, everybody, for your generous support uh, this week. Okay, guys. Let's, here. Yeah, thanks. Let's dive into the show. I want to start with Bill C-18 and Sean, come to you. This is the Online News Act. Regulations were released this last week, spelling out some of the details of the act. Sean, do you think this is enough uh, to keep Google at the bargaining table? That is the key kind of existential question facing Canadian media. Meta, Facebook, Instagram has said, nope, they're out. No more news on their platform for, I guess, over a month now. Mm. But Google is the 850-pound gorilla. There are (laughs) suggestions, Sean, that if Google leaves news in Canada, the traffic on many large news sites could fall by upwards of 50%. This would just blow a hole below the waterline of the business of a lot of online journalism in Canada. What's your take? Yeah, I'll make uh, two quick points before I turn it over to you guys. First, just on your last point, the, the reason for that, of course, is when the internet started pre-Google, people either had to use the original online search engines or they had to go directly to websites in order to access information. It was uh, a relatively inefficient model of, of internet use. And of course, what Google has done to transform the internet is to enable us to be able to search according to subject matters or themes or names or whatever and revolutionize the way in which we use the internet. And, you know. It, it's a relatively small number of people who come to the hub each day by www.thehub.ca, although we encourage you to, um, because of of the way in which Google search optimizes uh, one's time and, and internet usage. And so in that sense, if Google disappears and people are forced to basically revert back to early day 
internet use, it's it's going to have an effect, as you say, some estimates as much as as fifty percent, and that's why people have been paying such close attention to Google's reaction to these regulations. The second point I'd make is about the regulations themselves. This whole legislative process is reflective of a growing trend, not just in Canada, but across the Western world, where the legislative branch passes legislation that sort of signals intent, it declares intentions and purposes and aims and so on. And then it says, see regulations, <laughs> accompanying regulations to tell you precisely how we're going to do this, right? So um, the, the, the legislation was clear. The intention is to create some sort of framework whereby uh, Google and Meta are obliged to enter into financial arrangements with publishers, either on a voluntary basis or a mandatory basis. But it, it left unresolved a ton of questions like how much, how much ought they pay? Um, what are the conditions around which they would go about pursuing voluntary arrangements? How would the government determine whether those voluntary arrangements satisfy the uh, expectations of the act and so on and so forth? And so what came out late last Friday, Richard and I were up into the evening trying to read these legalese uh, written in, in the most uh, in bureaucratic speak. Uh, was the federal government's attempt to try to fill in those blanks in a way that ostensibly nodded to some of the concerns that Google had. You know, the biggest one, perhaps, is that it imposed a cap on uh, the company's liability under the act. So in other words, it wasn't an, um, an indeterminate liability subject to negotiations or government edict. The government said, uh, according to this formula, Google will have to spend up to $172 million across the Canadian media ecosystem. And we can get into some of the other details, but the key point I guess here is, is there enough in these regulations relative to the legislation to satisfy Google that it ought to comply and stay in the media business in Canada? I think the most interesting thing is, Rudyard, we're now on seven days since the release of the regulations and Google has been pretty quiet. Um, and so... If I was a member of the government, I would be growing increasingly concerned um, that they that we've not seen public utterances from you from Google um, that these are regulations that they can work with. Yeah, great analysis, Sean. My before I throw this over to Stuart, my quick take is that I think it's on the basis of reading these regulations. You and I wrote about them earlier this week in the Hub, Sean. I would think we're now into betting that I would, that Google is not going to um, comply, at least with the scheme as it's currently articulated in the regulations. Because I think what they were looking for and what maybe arguably Meta was still looking for was a pathway to voluntary um, compliance, i.e. Uh, instead of being forced into binding arbitration. But the route that the government has painted for voluntary compliance is a torturous one. And it's you know, I think Google has other challenges, so does Meta, with setting a precedent in Canada, this idea that there's a formula now to calculate the liability of these platforms to subsidize news, not just in Canada, if, it, if they voluntarily comply, but then that would be applied in other jurisdictions around the world. And Canada came up with it. We've got it in our piece, a very strange kind of formula that, you know, uses national GDP and you know, Google's total global revenues, Canada's GDP as a share of that. And then a 4%, a magic kind of 4% number that just 
pops out of kind of nowhere and goes back and conveniently creates an outcome so that Google's subsidy almost identically matches or doubles the subsidy that the government is already offering through uh, labor tax credits. And this is roughly 25% of all newsroom costs already in Canada are subsidized by the government. This would take that up if Google complied uh, and Meta complied, this would take it up to almost 50% of all newsroom costs subsidized by big tech and big government, which to me is just a on its surface, on its face, a kind of not a policy outcome that any of us want in terms of the declining credibility and public trust in the mainstream media. How is the public going to trust mainstream media if two of the major groups in society that it's arguably there to hold account, two of the most powerful groups, government and big tech, are then funding upwards of 50% of all newsroom costs. So I, you know, I think I think the funding formula will be a big problem for Google, but I think the bigger problem is that voluntary compliance requires Google to pick the winners and losers. Maybe what people don't understand here is that these regulations will have Google selecting which local news outlets, which national news outlets, if they voluntarily comply, will get funding. This is not uh, accountable. It will not be transparent. It forces Google into this bizarre role of kind of media gatekeeper. It kind of turns Google into this hugely powerful entity within Canadian society that will hold in its hands the fate of, I don't know, the the Sherbrooke record, the Saskatchewan recorder. I, I don't know what the names of the local papers and presses are, but I'm just saying they will live and die if if Google goes a voluntary compliance route on this, you know, tech titans in Silicon Valley figuring out which local entity will have a future and which won't. And I just, that's such a weird place for Google to be. It's politically fraught. It has big brand and, you know, social license risks attached to it. Uh, Stuart, what's your sense? I just, I don't know, maybe Google does comply. I mean, maybe I'm wrong here, but I just, I just think this is like the government forcing corporations to basically do all of its dirty kind of spade work because it, it understandably doesn't like the optics, the perception of it then having to step in in an emergency situation and government providing going from 25% of newsroom costs to 50% as a pure government taxpayer subsidy. Now, I think they're already halfway pregnant and you kind of can't be halfway pregnant. So I think they're kind of counting angels on the head of the pin. But Stuart, what's your take? You're in the media. Your colleagues are contemplating a future where half of their salaries will be paid for, not by the consumers of their news, but potentially by big tech and big government. Yeah. And, you know, if you'd spoken to me a month ago, I would have said the likeliest scenario is that they'd find a way. Google and the government would find some way to make the regulations work. And partly that was because it just seemed it would be unimaginable almost that Google wouldn't have this content accessible, news content, which when you actually look at your search results, it tends to be a lot of what they're giving you. And it tends to be a lot of the the relevant good stuff that you want. Um, but now I had the same thought as you uh, over the weekend that this does not look good. And when you game that out, I was trying to like imagine this new world. You can imagine the government coming in and saying, look, 
we fought tooth and nail. We tried to fight Google. We tried to get this money. We'll just pay for it because the cash itself is kind of a drop in the bucket. The government could do that easily. And then they could say politically, we fought big tech for you. They've decided to do what they've done. And then the big loser there is actually just Canadians who have crappier search results and an inferior products through no fault of their own. And just to add your point on this sort of red tape and the bureaucracy that this creates for Google, I think that's a huge point for this company because one of the big factors in the European regulations, the GDPR, was something like the right to be forgotten, where people can say, I don't want to be in Google. They should remove me. Europe made the search companies, which was Google and smaller players, set up panels full of lawyers to adjudicate all of these requests. That was millions of dollars. And what it actually did was it squeezed out the smaller players because they couldn't afford to do it. Google fought that tooth and nail. And I think it's one of the things they say they see creeping up on them is this just increased outsourcing of their regulatory burden onto themselves. I want to get you on this point, Sean. I don't want to be conspiratorial here, but this legislation is so bat, S-H-I-T-E, crazy in terms of how it's now spelled out in regs that one could only think that there might be a nefarious purpose here, which is what Stuart just outlined, which is that this is designed to collapse. There's no way Google's going to comply. These regulations were torqued and twisted in such a way to create a high incident event here, a high impact event for the media. The government then has to step in, provide 50% of all newsroom funding. We then go into an election, Sean, where every newsroom in Canada is sitting around looking at their colleagues saying, oh my gee, 50% of my fellow uh, men and women and they's, thems, and hers are, are funded by a party that is in this race against another party, which has gone on the record saying it will abolish all of this. Am I going to throw 50% of my colleagues under the bus in the next election and honestly cover this in a fair and balanced manner. It, this, this to me creates a, a horrible kind of moral jeopardy for the press. And it is acid, acid on the dwindling public trust in mainstream media. Yeah, well said. I don't know if that was the government's intention at the outset. You know, I, I think there's a world where the government, frankly, didn't take seriously the risk or threat that the companies wouldn't comply. Um but I, I think it is clear that some, some at some point along this process, that political instinct kicked in. And it probably is the first time the prime minister himself frames this a, as a, a kind of fight with big tech, it subordinates the question of the news and basically makes this about which party is prepared to uh, stand up on behalf of Canadians vis-a-vis -vis big tech. I think it's at that point the government decides for better or for worse they're into this and they might as well leverage it as much as possible um and and if an auxiliary outcome is that they step in and save the day after google leaves the market um uh you know they're all the better for it so i i think there really is something to that and i i don't know Stuart. it'd be interesting to get your take on this there's a kind of counterintuitive way in which isn't there a risk for them that the media being hypersensitive to the precise point that Rudyard raises actually 
um, in order to demonstrate its independence, kind of sharpens its its knives uh, uh, when it's when interacting with the government. I'm, you know, just yesterday the prime minister did a press conference in Southeast Asia where he's traveling in and around the G20, and he took some tough questions about, um, you know, how he's become a weight on the political standing of the party, if he's contemplating re- resignation and so on. Like, I, just, it felt like during that press conference, something had shifted. And, you know, one wonders if uh, the the fear of being perceived as, uh, as non-objective because of the growing role of public monies actually has a kind of backfires for the government in terms of its interactions with the media. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that's right, because I think exactly what Roger laid out, which is that the public continues to distrust distrust the media because of this. And but what the media is actually doing is sort of demonstrating their independence. And I know a lot of reporters, almost every reporter I know, the instinct of how you react to blood in the water in politics, I think trumps absolutely everything. So what we've seen, I think, in the last year or so, and especially this year, is people are looking at Trudeau a little differently. And uh, when we see the approval numbers coming in, you know, every couple of weeks, and you see the polling coming in every couple of weeks, uh, that conversation has started. And that's not, Trudeau is not helped by the organization behind the scenes of various leadership contenders. So I, I think probably what you'll see is that that kind of stuff trumps it all, but everyone watching the campaign, and if every single reporter on the CBC has dealt with this, which is that they know that they're government funded and they know that conservatives are far more likely to disagree with that funding and every campaign they come they have to to deal with that while they cover it that's tough and now every reporter on the campaign trail is going to be dealing with that it's a, it's a new situation yeah that's a, a really insightful point i mean at at some level the combination of pre-existing funding possi- and, and and the scenario in which the federal government steps in to essentially close the gap created by Google leaving the market begins to turn the entire media edifice into mini CBCs. Um, And as you say, that has created some challenges in the past for CBC, which I think to be fair, most of its journalists have managed pretty effectively, but it's always at the backdrop. Right. And, uh, and that's now a challenge that um, journalists in, in other organizations will possibly face for the first time. Uh, one thing I've been thinking about, though, and I think I hope this has been reflected in our commentary on the subject, is that, um, well, we have real qualms with both C-18 and some of the other ways in which the government has sought to intervene in the name of protecting um, the uh, media industry, which is going through some something of a, a period of disruption, that we accept there may be a need for some type of support, right? Um, you know, we don't want to create a false binary where we say, um, uh, you know, these are bad and there's nothing to be done. Um, you know, for instance, uh, we've talked at different times about some form of, of tax credit uh, to individuals. So the money follows the choices of individuals as opposed to the choices of, of government. I I'm increasingly interested, Stuart, in the quali- the quali- qualified Canadian journalistic organization legal status, which sits somewhere between a um, 
uh, a conventional for-profit media organization and a registered charity that provides for some of the upsides of a registered charity, um, but at the same time provides greater editorial flexibility and independence and so on than a conventional charity might. So um, I think it'll be important for Pierre Polyev and the conservatives not merely to articulate the case against these various clumsy and suboptimal public interventions, but, um, but at the same time be thinking of are there other ways um, that are that empower individuals um, rather than the government or big tech uh, to make sure that we do have a, a, a thriving and objective and independent media ecosystem in the country. You know, I think uh, that that's obviously important. What, what's your take, Rudyard? How can, you know, how do we balance the need for supporting the sector, at least in, in theory, um, and uh, and the inherent problems of some of the ways in which the government has gone about doing that in, in C-18 and, and in other policy interventions. Yeah, well, let me wrap this segment up. We're just, I agree, let's focus on solutions because we shouldn't be relentlessly negative about this. Um, and I'll put my kind of Austrian uh, later hosen on. It's creative destruction, guys. It's happening. You, you know, we're, we're undergoing a transition. You have big industrial news conglomerates they are breaking down. There's going to be a period of kind of cottage industries that spring up in the fertile wreckage of, uh, you know, uh, mainstream media that is happening right now. That's happening across the Western world. Canada will be no different. And then we'll go through a new period of consolidation. This will take time, could take a decade. I don't know, but we have to let this process unfold. It will be messy. It may be painful. It may have periods that are suboptimal in terms of the availability of local news and information. But the alternative is what the government is pursuing, which is to freeze in place a status quo that demonstrably has had its underpinnings uh, blown out by technological change and change in consumer habits. This is Einstein's definition of insanity. It's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So look, I actually hope it's it's going to be painful. It's going to be potentially hugely disruptive to media in Canada. But I hope that Google doesn't agree. I hope that Google goes the route of meta. And I hope that we have a moment of reckoning. And that forces this whole process along as opposed to going into another internegrum, another period of, you know, anesthetizing the patient and not getting underway with the surgery. We have to start the surgery now. Let's take a break. Back on the other side, we're going to talk about these declining liberal poll numbers. What the heck is going on? Um, we've got some kind of meta theses, each of us, as to what may be at the roots of what seems to be a seismic shift in public opinion about this government and about the future of Canadian politics. Back for you right after this break with that discussion. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed, a new series that we're dropping. It's six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the 
the big ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050, and we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts. So if you're enjoying them, please listen to these episodes with Pathways. Give us your feedback. We'd love your input, but also share them with friends and family. That would be greatly appreciated. Well, with that advertisement over, let's go back to our regular programming. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I'm joined by Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief, Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Well, guys, before we dive into the second topic, just a quick heads up to our listeners who've made it to the second half of the show. You are people of discernment, erudition, education, or maybe just gluttons for punishment. But you're here. You're in the second half. We want to let you know that we're going to be restarting The Hub's daily email next week. We took the summer off, giving the team a break on uh, producing the daily email, but we're back next week with something that we think you will really like. It's a new kind of more interactive daily email offering. Uh, It's going to be called Hub Forum. It's going to give you the opportunity to discuss our most important and big idea of the day as captured in one of our opinion pieces. You, our valued subscribers, are going to be able to interact with the authors, the Hub team, your fellow Hub members, and tear that policy down to the studs and hopefully uh, leave our authors and the larger policymaking community with some new ideas and insights. So look out for Hub Forum in your inbox next week. You're only going to get Hub Forum two ways. If you were grandfathered in, if you're getting per diem before the summer, you were grandfathered in as one of our valued uh, early adopters of the Hub, or you are a Hub donor and are making that contribution of 25 cents a day, $7.99 a month, 99 bucks a year, charitable tax receipt. It's the best deal in town. Grab it now, get Hub Forum in your inbox if you're not already either grandfathered in or already a Hub donor. Okay, guys, let's uh, jump into topic number two. I'm going to come to you first, Stuart. This latest Angus Reid poll, you know, mind blowing. You're starting to see the Liberal Party itself, you know, previously a liberal identified voters abandoning the party in key demographics that used to be the bedrock of this prime minister's support within liberal uh, identified or liberal leaning voters. What is your thesis as to what the heck is going on here? Yeah, I will just say off the top too, that that stuck out to me so much because in the Ontario election here, one of the key polling numbers was that Ontario liberals didn't think their guy, Stephen Del Duca, was the best candidate for premier. And I that happened two months before the election, and I almost didn't pay attention because I knew the result after I saw that poll. That is a toxic number, um, and it's a really bad trend to see. And I think that's why, you see, Sean mentioned earlier some pretty hard questions going to the prime minister. The thing the prime minister has going in his advantage right now is that there's no kind of obvious candidate waiting in the wings to threaten him. So... Um, that, that's not a huge endorsement of him, just that there's nobody else waiting. Um, I think 
if you were to diagnose what's going on here, I I can't look past the just the kind of exhaustion with this government. And you know the the problems you see in the early days that you know for the average voter kind of annoy you. They accumulate after a few years, and then they become the the only thing you see. The other thing, this government has spent so much money, um, they don't have a lot of ammo to bring out some new policies that might swing people. And the fiscal situation, the thing that Polyev kind of saw from the beginning, the squeezing that's happening on every family budget right now, uh, people are looking around for someone to blame for that. And I, I think the prime minister is getting a lot of these things accumulating just all at once. Yeah, I would just say I agree with everything Stuart has just said, but I would add that the government, which has been so politically adept, really dating back to 2015, has had such a tin ear on these growing public concerns about inflation and affordability in general and housing in particular. I've just been struck, guys, that throughout the past several months, rather than acknowledge how people are feeling and have a plan that looks proportionate, Oftentimes, you find the prime minister and the minister of finance kind of challenging the premise, searching for evidence and data that proves that, no, to the contrary, we're leading the G7 in some, you know, micro economic proof point or whatever. There's just been this, I don't know if it's pride or hubris or whatever, a, a detachment, uh, but a, a kind of unwillingness to reckon with this kind of growing sentiment within the Canadian public. And in some ways, that was most powerfully expressed a couple of weeks ago at the cabinet retreat, where they pre-positioned this big uh, plan around housing, and then there was nothing. I mean, that is deadly, um, it seems to me. And so, of course, there's been scandals in the, the Chinese election interference stuff and all the rest. But I think all of those probably would have been manageable if the government would have spoken with real empathy when these housing issues and affordability issues started to emerge and had something resembling a proportionate plan, as opposed to essentially talking about all the great things that they've done in the past um, or um, cynically kind of trying to buy people with their own money, which I think people are discerning enough to say, like, you know, that's not a $50 check or whatever it was. Remember the, the, the so-called grocery rebate? I think people kind of saw through that and it seems so piddly relative to how a lot of people are feeling. And I guess it's just the last thing. Um, one of the consequences of the distribution of, of our parliament is that we end up with governments led by conservatives that lack um, urban representation. And we have governments led by liberals that lack uh, rural representation. And part of me wonders, guys, if one of the challenges here is you just have a lot of people around the cabinet table who kind of swim in the same bathwater, who have the same experiences and perspectives, um, and they really, you know, they can hear polling numbers about how people are feeling but they're just not confronting it in their own day-to-day -day lives, their own day-to-day -day experiences. And that's why they've been so flat-footed on, you know, what is an increasing kind of housing and affordability crisis in our country? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, good. You you didn't uh, steal my thunder. So I, I think there's a different issue. I want your take on this. I think that the issue, the 
that you know it's been dormant for thankfully for a quarter century or more the depth charge that has gone off at the bottom of um you know emotion and anxiety and anger about what's happening in Canada right now is immigration. I think something profound has, has happened to the Canadian conversation about immigration because of these record numbers that have, um, have been enabled by the Liberals' policies around student visas, mostly, that's mostly where it's at in terms of over a million plus entrants into the country in the last year. Plus, you know, suddenly in the last week it's reported, oh, well, maybe there's another million people we didn't realize were here who've overstayed their visas. They're... So the bad part of this is that there's, a, I think, a portion of the public that has a sentiment that this is out of control and it's threatening, it's threatening housing, it's threatening affordability, it's threatening public infrastructure. I recently had a friend who unfortunately had a, a bike accident here in Toronto and, you know, fractured uh, the bone around his eye. He waited for 18 hours in a chair with no pain therapy, no nothing, just a gauze pad to put up against his bleeding eye to wait 18 hours to get surgery to repair his orbital bone. Like, you just small stories like that, friends whose mothers, you know, are paying, had to either wait two years for cataract surgery or pay, or pay as an Ontario resident $6,000 to jump the line to get into a government mandated clinic. Another friend whose parent was anticipating a two year waiting list for hip surgery and went bizarrely to Brussels to get their hip done. So that's the bad part of the immigration story. The good, bad in the, in the sense that there's real anxiety here now around immigration and its consequences on the country. The good part of it is, I think there's indignation, a lot of part of Canadians about how these immigrants are being treated. We said we were never going to exploit immigrants again. This country has a crappy history when it comes to Ukrainians, Chinese, uh, South Asians, other groups that have come here over the last you know, century and a half who had the you-know-what exploited out of them in various ways. And we said we were never going to do that again. We said we were going to be the, you know, the shining city on the hill when it came to immigration and how we treated immigrants. And now you've got stories in the National Post this week that immigrants are sleeping in tents on roads because they can't get housing in order to access and be compliant with their student visa programs. And again, that may be, you know, just a handful of people, but that regardless, that is an embarrassment. It's unacceptable. And what's, what I think is the acid here, guys, in the polls, is just the hypocrisy of this, right? The valorization of our diversity and tolerance by this government ad nauseum over the last seven years. And we are treating these newcomers like crap. And that is not the Canadian way. And Canadians are getting deeply pissed off about this. So you put together the anxiety piece of swamped public infrastructure, overcrowding in our biggest cities, and then the righteous, righteous moral indignation at the exploitation of these immigrants by these community colleges, these degree mills that have been allowed to pop up in our, our suburbs and strip malls across this country, unacceptable. 
firing a fence, Stuart. I think that's a big part of what's going on here. Yeah, I, I was curious earlier in the month um, if immigration was caused by the cost of living crisis or if all this was sort of coming from these issues originally in the year when this it started coming out. And I think it actually doesn't matter. Um, one thing that happened in the U.S. is the salience of the issue of immigration jumped up the list. When people rank the issues they care about, the sentiments on immigration mostly stayed the same, but people started to care about it more. And that allowed a populist explosion in the U.S. And it's happened across the Western world. It hasn't happened in Canada. And I can't tell you, as an immigrant, someone who's married to a child of immigrants, I can't tell you how furious it would make me if our 30-year um, agreement and sort of uh, consensus on immigration as a positive thing was compromised so glibly and so thoughtlessly, um, almost without the government even knowing it. That's what's increasingly coming out is the student visa stuff is happening while they were asleep at the switch. It wasn't something they did like you do with immigration targets. So that is kind of a toxic brew of political cynicism, which seems to have exploded in their face, and also just not paying attention. Um, that's the kind of stuff that when you're a government at the end of your tenure, uh, these are the things that we look back on and say, that's why a government loses. I want to turn to what, if anything, the government can do about this. Uh, it's something I've been thinking about in the past few days. Now, if you think, guys, there are a few exceptions where incumbent governments found themselves so underwater in the polls and were able to turn things around. Um, in British Columbia, when Gordon Campbell steps down and he's replaced by Christy Clark, the BC Liberals are able to eke out one more election win before they're ultimately defeated. That's the same story in, in Ontario when McGinty, Delta McGinty steps down and Kathleen Wynne becomes party leader and premier and they they managed to secure one more win. You know, it's not obvious that the prime minister is going to step down in the, in the, in the at least in the immediate term. And if he doesn't, the question is, what, if anything, can this government do <laughs> to, to reverse its its fortunes? And we've gone out to some interest, the hub that is, we've gone out to some interesting people, including a lot of liberals to get their advice. And I, I got to tell you, there's not a lot of clear answers. You know, a lot of people are saying, well, we need something like free trade in 1988 to try to galvanize progressive voters, galvanize swing voters, and create a, a kind of clear different differentiation with the conservative party. But what would that be in 2023 or 2025 for that matter? Um, I, I don't know. I, 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 I kind of get the sense, especially based on the, the government's performance in the past several weeks, that it doesn't understand the urgency it faces. And um, and if that's the case, um, you know, then I don't know. It seems hard to think that absent replacing the one at the top, um, that they're going to be able to come back from this. They're in free fall. And look, the, the economy contracted in the last quarter. Uh, the bank, you know, paused on its interest rate hike this week, I think largely because probably not only that contraction, but with their what they're seeing under the hood. So this government is dealing with these, these real issues that have collapsed their support, and now they're going to run straight into the brick wall of a recession? I mean, I don't know, guys. I think, I think we're going to see something in the next month or two. I, I think either this prime minister exits, and as you say, Sean, they put a new something new in the shop window, or um, maybe the timing on election gets moved up, because I just do not see any sense here for the NDP to keep pausing? There's going to come a point where the NDP are like, well, why are we propping this government up? We can actually do better. 
And I think there's going to be pressure in the government to say, well, what, we're going to wait two years and somehow this whole trend line is magically going to turn around? I mean, that's, that's crazy talk. Well, fascinating talk here, crazy or not. Uh, always great to connect with you guys on a Friday. Thank you, Amal Adder Guzman, for producing this podcast. And thank you again to all those new hub donors uh, we mentioned off the top of the show. Really appreciate your support. You can become a donor right now at www.thehub.ca for as low as 25 cents a day. Please uh, support the hub. We'd really appreciate it. Okay, we'll talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atter Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.